Intifada's History as a Weapon, number 15. This is me, Sean KB. I'm here, of course, with Matt Chrisman. Hey, hey. And Andy uh, on the ones and twos here. Uh, maybe going to chime in a little bit. DJ Andy. DJ Andy on the ones and twos. We're here. Uh, this is our 15th fucking episode of this uh, little Antifada miniseries. We are here today to see if you find folks out there in podcast land are woke to the LQ. If you understand, if you wrap your heads around a question that bedeviled uh, the peoples of the 19th century, a question that seemed to be solved by the mid-20th century, but a question that has returned with a vengeance. That question, of course, is the labor question. The United States uh, has a very particular history. What Matt and I are going to talk about today is something that we touched on on what was it? Uh, we did the one on uh, why there's no labor party yes, in the United yes. States. I think that was episode. That was very early. Three, yeah. maybe. So we're talking three, four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also uh, in the uh, our our uh, episode on pivotal decade, the 1970s, we talked about the kind of decomposition of the Fordist labor regime and the entire political economy that created it in the 1970s. And here, I think we want to ask some more cutting uh, and essential questions about labor unions and the working class in the United States, about uh, what's happened, not just in the last 50 years, but what is it about America that uh, union density has declined more than in places like Europe, uh, and that unions have really receded from American life in a way that... uh, it would be incredible to somebody looking, you know, 50 years ago when it seemed like the labor relations system of the United States was strongly embedded, not just economically, but politically and culturally, really, in the life of this country. Yeah, they're hitting uh, all time lows now, I believe, like around 10 percent now. Uh, and this is well, union uh, unionization drives are uh, working and there are there is like a raw increase in. Uh, uh, organized workers, people in labor unions, but they're being dwarfed by the number of non-union jobs being created. Yes. So it's still the the density is still shrinking. And then, and everybody here knows because we've talked about it on the Antifada. Chapo's talked about. It. Everybody's talked about for the last year and a half this strike wave. It started with Striketober. It seemed as though there was this re- resurgence of workers' militancy. There was a whole series of. of pretty large strikes over the last couple of years that made it into the national news. And it seemed as though um, there, this might have been an inflection point, like a breakthrough point for American labor. And yet, as Derek Varn has pointed out many, many times, and the statistics, the statistics bear this out, the actual density, union density, uh, as Matt points out, the ratio of union members to non-union members in this country has continued to decline. Mm-hmm. So it seems as though <clears throat> to us that uh, something's not working, you know, despite, I think, very high, up in the mid-70s, um, approval ratings of yeah, unions. Density's never been lower. Public approval of unions as a concept has never been higher. So I saw something since uh, 60 million workers would like to be in a union if they could. 60 million. Yeah. To put that into perspective, like the mass organizing drives of the 1930s that basically gave birth to the American working class and its organized capacity was 8 million workers. Yeah. Now, granted, there were you know obviously less people at that point yeah. in time, but imagine... If everybody who wanted a union could have one in this country, how that would change not just, you know, the economy, but the balance of class forces and, of course, politics as well. Yeah. But 
despite all this, uh, it seems as though we're stymied. As folks know, uh, or if you're a first-time listener to this, I am a union member. I am in a conservative uh, craft uh, union. We're going to talk a lot about uh, the ways in which the very particular uh, birth and evolution of American capitalism, really Anglo-American capitalism, mm-hmm. but we're talking about the United States in this case. Maybe we'll, we'll do some comparative stuff with other countries, especially like Europe, Scandinavia, France, and Germany. But in America, unions develop in a in a very different way. Or, or to put it another way, in the United States, uh, unlike people like Marx and Engels or people like August Bebel or Carl Kautsky or in the United States, uh, Eugene Debs or big Bill Haywood, uh, you know, they, they pointed to what they saw as an evolutionary process of working class organization, the class, uh, a class in itself becoming for itself. And within that was an evolution as they saw it. And this happened in much of the developed world, less so in the United States for reasons we'll point out. A a development from conservative, excuse me, craft trade unionism into industrial social unionism that takes political questions, national political questions, the drive for social democracy or something beyond social democracy serious as part of the union movement and drive. This seems as though it happens in the United States in the 1930s for reasons I'm going to outline. That's actually a false dawn. But now we're in a point where it seems as though something unique happened in America, which is that this evolutionary form, such as it was predicted and such as happened in other places, stops in the United States. We stop with the self-interested, narrow, craft unionism, pure and simple unionism of Gompers even in what claim to be industrial unions in the United States. And the reasons for that are many, but we'll see that a lot of this is basically the way that American labor law is cobbled together out of a series of reactions by progressive and conservative forces to what is the case in the United States and everywhere, which is this sort of natural, seemingly natural and instinctive reaction of members of the working class to fight uh, a protracted class struggle based on the material conditions that they arise out of. That is something that has always been the case under capitalism and will continue to be no matter what American labor law is. But what we want to get to at the end of this episode is to look at the ways in which American unionism has failed, the ways in which the state and the law holds unions back, and the ways in which the unions we have right now have to be overcome in order for there to be anything, you know, let alone communism, even social democracy and reform in this country cannot uh, cannot progress given the conditions of the American working class and its organization at this point. Uh, yeah, it's pretty clear that the what we what we've inherited as as forms for uh, working class organization uh, are just fully co opted uh, and. Uh, like any bureaucracy, uh, are staffed with people whose primary and first uh, interest will always be maintaining their own position within a hierarchy, uh, and that uh, those positions are threatened by the, the, the implications of the sort of confrontation that uh, is going to have to happen and is going to have to uh, become lar- uh, more... Uh, concerted and more aggressive in the coming years if there's going to be any reversal of trends as they exist and that comes with it significant risks and that is what uh our existing institutions 
are incapable of confronting is 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 endangering their positions. And these are risks that not only face a union leadership, uh, which is, you know, basically an adjunct of the Democratic Party at this point in time. And let's even just call it as it is an adjunct to capital, Mm -hmm. as we've seen in the last couple of years and have seen throughout U.S. labor history, the union uh, leadership putting brakes on the militant self-activity of unions. You know, we've mentioned before on this show, 98 percent strike vote for the IATSE union in order to actually go down and fight and strike for a better wage, for a better collective bargaining uh, in the film industry, 98%, and the union leadership refuses to strike. They make a deal with capital, and they decide, you know, strikes off the table. We're just going to go the regular bureaucratic collective bargaining route. We're going to sit across the table, get the best deal that we can possibly get. Putting brakes on the struggle is what the union leadership does, not necessarily because they're corrupt, not necessarily because they're feckless, not necessarily because their interests are not just self-interested, but also tied into the interests of the entire sort of uh, – political structure of this country, especially the progressives in the Democratic Party. Uh, it's also because the risks are fucking real. Yeah. Decertification as a risk is fucking real. Judges coming down with injunctions and enjoining concerted strike activity is real. The, uh, the possibility of losing a strike and potentially going backwards and being delegitimated in the eyes of their membership is a real fucking risk. And the risk isn't only for them. The risk is also, you know, as a union member myself, I too could lose everything. You know, you too out there, if you're in a union, could lose everything. If you go out on a limb there and end up having to lose your job, go to prison or whatever it is, these risks are very fucking real. But these are risks that Americans um, of all creeds, class and, and creeds and colors and ethnicities and religious background, native and immigrant took in the 19th century and the early 20th century and the mid 20th century and built this structure that is now ossified, broken, structurally unsound, falling apart, dribbling away as we fucking speak, as the numbers decline and as unions become less and less important to American life and the economy and their political vision is completely, completely co-opted. You know, these are the sort of risks that people have taken. And by the end of this episode, I think what we want to do is lay out uh, the sort of... um, what a sort of movement would look like to uh, return to a period where the working class uh, has collective agency in this country, has a collective voice, has the militant ability to actually fight for itself outside of the dictates of the state, outside of the dictates of various political parties, and to be able to basically rebuild something that we saw happen in the 19th century in this country, which was a different conception of unionism, whether it was the Knights of Labor, whether it was the industrial workers of the world, whether it was members, especially the communist-led members of the, of the CIO in the 1930s. There is another tradition of unionism in this country, and that's something that we need to pick up and potentially try to run with again. Yeah, I mean, the the... The creed, the credo was, you know, from Marx uh, and Engels, you have nothing to lose for your chains, and that that mindset was pervasive, precisely because of how uh, of how desperate that struggle was, and how how much the risk seemed worth it compared to the uh, uh, other possibility of knuckling under into uh, immiseration, which is the which was the uh, inevitable uh, and only. Uh, 
uh, alternative to, to struggle. Now we're at a point where there is a real sense that there is a lot to, to lose, uh, where union workers do have better wages than uh, people who don't uh, have unions. They do have more benefits. They have something to lose. Mm-hmm. And their leadership has what the leadership of any kind of uh, bureaucratic institution uh, at this point in history has, a, a morality of uh, responsibility. Yes. Like that is, that is what they, that is how they ground their own sense of worth. Their sense of, uh, of, of value to the organization is that they have a responsibility to their membership, which is to protect what they have. Right. Uh, and that is a, that's, as you said, that doesn't need to be corrupt. It doesn't need to be, uh, uh, underhanded. It is a earnest, uh, conception of, of, of morality and, and it is, has persuasive power. Oh, uh, it does. And, the only thing that's going to, I think, what's going to uh, break this uh, this logjam is just the reappearance of that uh, awareness that those earlier uh, labor strugglers had of the inevitability of decline mm. in, if if resistance is not uh, uh, taken up. It isn't like uh, the conception of decline from the 19th century with like some quote unquote iron law of wages, right? The decline, especially in the United States that we see and we feel all around us. I mean, everybody, you know, right, left, center uh, will tell you it feels like things are crumbling and falling Mm -hmm. apart in this country. The moment really when... Uh, the possibilities for an inclusive and radical and militant industrial national coordinated union movement in this country, the moment that that became impossible was really American entry into World War I. It was America and its rise as the global hegemon and all those imperial spoils that come in that puts us on this particular route now that leads our working class and the working class quote-unquote leadership down a path where some of the spoils from empire, some of the many of the spoils of capital with a profit system that's making more and more every year can be quote unquote shared with the working class. Mm -hmm. These are not the conditions we have right now. There's not some abstract law, iron law of of declining wages out there that we're all confronting as workers or that people feel on the streets and see every day. It is a real decline. And it's one that we, you know, obviously are, are, are looking at um, with uh, the American economy and just the American empire at this moment. So for all the reasons we've talked about in this show that American history, American political economy, the American political structure, and now the American union structure <clears throat> is reaching certain material limits Right. Material limits reached in the 1970s with its manufacturing capacity, this move towards financialization, material limits we talked about where free land becomes Mm -hmm. this sort of pressure valve that allows a lot of the class conflict to be displaced out into the countryside, Uh, cheap housing, things of that sort. All of these limits seem to be reach reaching their their end point now in the United States. And what that means is that people are going to be forced, I think, maybe for the first time in 100 years or so to fight as though their lives depend on it. Right. And that. Yeah. And that is like that. We need to be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. And we need to be prepared with the knowledge of what. The deficits are uh, with the American labor relations system, but also aware that there are other options and kind of lay out um, a prospectus, let's say, Mm -hmm. on how we could pull on different levers and work in different ways. So the thesis, really, one main thesis of this uh, episode is that one of the reasons why American labor history is different, one of the reasons why this evolutionary process from... Uh, narrow craft conservative 
uh, pure and simple bread and butter unionism um, continues and industrial unionism doesn't actually take hold in the ways it did in France or Germany or Scandinavia is that Amer- uh, capitalist social relations come to the United States are, are, are in existence at its birth, mm-hmm. right? Very, we didn't have like ancient feudal trains. We didn't have an aristocracy to overthrow. We didn't have uh, a non-capitalist mode of production uh, at the birth of this country and the, the crafting of its laws. When America is born, America is born capitalist, unlike many other places. So the early industrialization that happens in the United States we're talking about in the 1820s, 1830s, and then, of course, starts roaring in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, all the working class, as it was organized into like artisanal production and craft production, is the working class that faces um, early industrialization. Which is to say that because the United States industrializes early and has capitalist social relations already. Um, the working class picks up the sort of forms and ways of organizing and ways of struggle and uses its skills and the exclusivity of its craft labor in order to form its early union organizations. These come out of the guild system, you know, master, journeyman, and apprentice. Uh, in the United States, that form is, um, is harder. Uh, it's, it's more determined than it is in other places. So to put this into practice, right, in France and Germany – which both have very different labor systems. You had um, feudal social relations uh, that people have been fighting against uh, th- through the, like the early modern period. You had uh, industrialization coming in instead of like a, an organic process of proletarianization and dispossession. Uh, you had instead like the implantation of giant factories all of a sudden into towns all at once. So the working class and the way in which work was organized is already in an industrial format, already working in a sort of semi-skilled mechanized environment, unable to use, say, the craft knowledge of being able to like make a carriage in order to like use those skills in order to bargain in like a craft position against capital. In the United States, it's very different. So we keep this sort of um, very particular way of organizing, like a post-artisanal, post-guild system of um, working class organization in a way that European countries don't because they industrialize later. Yeah, and you get uh, craft unionism in America uh, emerging as a in an inextricable uh, connection to the greater yeoman fantasy of American autonomy. Right. Like, like that is a horizon for, uh, like, personal, like, uh, 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 self-realization that really isn't available to the burgeoning working class in Europe. It's, right. it's, not, it's not a thing that anybody thinks is going to happen, and that's one of the things that uh, fuels the creation of, like, working class identity in Europe is, is that lack of a, hor- a frontier of horizon of an alternative, uh, whereas even uh, for workers in early America, uh, their idea of, uh, how, of what they would be seeking through their organizing uh, is mirrored by the, the greater dream of uh, yeoman self-sufficiency. Yeah, that, that uh, Jeffersonian idea and the Jacksonian idea later on in the 1830s. The loco focos. <laughs> 
They were the uh, the early labor radicals in the New York Democratic Party. Uh, they called the Loco Focos. I like that. Yeah, which had, that was the name of a uh, a self lighting cigar that you could buy, which sounds like something that's a recipe for uh, <laughs> bursting into flames in your bed. <laughs> but there was a, a political party, and the the uh, there was a bunch of radical. Uh, laborers who, who wanted to push an agenda that the democratic party didn't want so they turned out on the lamps and then so the members they pulled out their loco focos and they ignited them to to, to make light the room up oh shit yeah what did, what was this the 1820 yeah 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 because the the first um like independent working class political parties in the united states are also in the 1820s the yeah. working men's parties yeah. which are big in new york and philadelphia and boston what they are is you know a reaction to um you know the changing composition of work in america as you say this sort of Jeffersonian idea, which again, if you're interested, you can go back to the earlier episodes where we talk about how powerful this idea was, not just in early America, but in the very perverted way that it kind of gets handed down to us today. This idea of uh, freedom and liberty being a lack of dependency on others, um, sort of a a political virtue that comes from economic uh, independence, um, which of course in early America, where almost everybody's a farmer, um, and in the cities where you have, you're a master of your craft and you have journey people under you, journeymen under you and apprentices where you have mastery over this particular um, manufacturing process, industrial process, this is, this is seen as given. Mm-hmm. And so what happens by the 1820s and 1830s is as the guild system breaks down, um, as uh, entrepreneurs, let's call them, which is to say, um, guild masters, say, in making shoes or in making cloth or textiles, break out of that guild system and uh, start to build basically factories where they put, instead of journeymen under there making entire shoes, they take that process, put it under one roof, hire 20 or 30 uh, wage workers now, and do the same thing with much higher productivity. When that artisanal guild system starts to break down, and this is what I was trying to get at before, what we're trying to get at is that the, the ways the ways in which that artisanal Republican sort of democratic way of understanding work and labor and what it means to be an American carries on into the labor movement as these are the sort of levers that workers are grabbing to pull because it's what they know. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been in the 1820s, 1830s, even into the 19, 1860s, a tradition of industrial unionism, mm-hmm. right? Getting all skilled, semi-skilled quote-unquote, unskilled workers into one union, all bargaining together, trying to create, like, massive wage agreements across towns, across cities, across states, and across the country in order to raise the floor, you know, for, like, vast numbers of workers within a particular sector. That didn't exist yet. So when the early industrialization starts in the United States, workers grab for what they know, which is that if you're skilled, if you're a craftsperson, you're going to be able to use... Um, your control over your, the, the process of production, your control of the craft knowledge and skills that you have, um, the collective control that you have, you had within a guild system in order to extract from capital particular wages, particular benefits, right? But also be able to exclusively control a particular job market in a particular jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. This is what craft unionism is all about. In the, in the, eight, in the 19th century, right? 
craft unionism is a way for workers to try to hold back the tides of capital. Capital mm-hmm. coming in in this treadmill fashion and using its revolutionization of the means of production, the technical organization of labor, the use of science, uh, even the social division of labor, uh, larger than that, use that in order to extract more and more productivity out of the labor process and expel workers uh, from that labor process, but also importantly, as we see with Taylorism in the early 20th century, to use uh, machinery, to use means of production in order to dumb down very complex and skilled tasks. Yeah. So workers then <clears throat> in the 19th century are faced with something that workers hadn't faced before, except maybe in England a little bit before that, which is this monstrosity of capital coming down and taking their well-hewn craft sensibilities and their power that they have collectively in order to exclusively control a particular trade in one market, coming down and smashing that. And so they grab for what they can, which is what's left of their skills. And that is early American unionism. Yeah, and uh, and. There is a resistance uh, amongst the craft unions to the not only the encroachment of capital, but also the encroachment of the concept of industrial unionization. Mm-hmm. That they 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 resist the idea of being amalgamated into people, uh, into a, with a bunch of people who do not have the skills that they have, who who do not have the leverage that they have, for the fear that it will bring their uh, ability to uh, to gar- bargain their labor down right to their level. Yeah, and you know. What what this what ends up happening is that the particular political economy of the United States, which is that production is not national, it's not being done in the early period by big mega capitalists coming in and implanting an entire factory somewhere, maybe in the textile mills of like Lowell they were, right? But more often it was localized, decentralized production by petty capitalists, you know, with maybe hiring 15, 20, 30 workers in a particular craft to come in and work with them under one roof. So the way that unions organized themselves then in this early period, and this is left with us uh, down to this day, is that they too are local you know, local unions, <laughs> they uh, try to garner an exclusive control over over all of those jobs within a particular territory. That's their jurisdiction. And in order to do that, you have to keep other workers out, mm-hmm. right? You have to actually say, this is our union and we have a closed shop now. And if you're not part of our union, you can't work here. Yeah. And so what labor leaders by the late uh, 19th century are saying, uh, people like Debs and Haywood, and others is that you know the American Federation of Labor, the Sam Gompers, like arch conservative, pure and simple unionism um, umbrella group, basically that brings all these crafts together, is not the American Federation of Labor. It's the American Separation of Labor. Mm-hmm. What it's doing is balkanizing labor, and what we need is actually to organize it and centralize it. Yeah, I mean, and that speaks to the differing goals. The, the the horizons that these two types of unionism have the the gompers unionism sees does see uh, a collaborative relationship at, at, at the end of the day between capital and labor yep. that sees that uh, you know in the context of uh, an America with a, a seemingly endless frontier uh, all conflicts between labor and capital can be resolved mm-hmm. uh, and and that it is labor's job to facilitate that resolution. Uh, and they are in conflict with a labor, uh, radical labor movement that 
sees the conflict between labor and capital as irreconcilable yes. and meet and uh, recognizes that it, it, since you cannot assume a permanent horizon and frontier there has to be a reckoning between these two forces and that if if you are a laborer then it stands to reason that you should want to organize for labor to win that conflict right right yeah i mean um this is like <clears throat> this plays itself out through the 19th and early 20th, early 20th century the first attempt in the united states because as we know the civil war comes and for all it does in the south and the north it leads to a massive spurt of industrialization mm-hmm. coming out of the war itself you know you need massive amounts of textiles produ- produced for the soldiers you need massive amount of processed food stuff for the soldiers you need massive amounts of boots produced and weapons produced mm-hmm. so the post civil war period is one of booming industrialization it's when railroads really of course for the first time start to create a unified market in the united states uh along with canals uh and so you have this spurt of industrialization. It's really in the late uh, 1860s and into the 1870s that industrial conflict really starts to mature in the United States. And by mature, I mean, as you might know, we have one of the bloodiest, mm-hmm. maybe the bloodiest labor history uh, in the entire world. And the reasons for that are myriad. But part of it is that the state, Right. The foundation of this country, the Constitution, uh, this sort of superstructure has real effects on the ways in which people could imagine their own struggle uh, and the ways in which uh, state capacity could be used in order to favor one side or the other. In America, you know, it's just as <clears throat> illegal for a, um, a business over owner to uh, picket, uh, to put up a hard picket outside of a workplace as it is for a worker, right? Yeah, and the right. magisterial <laughs> equality of the law, yeah. you know, uh, the, the, <clears throat> the capitalists can't sleep under bridges and they also can't stop commerce from happening with right. somebody else. In the United States... In this sort of yeoman, Republican, uh, very like liberal in a classical sense um, superstructure that we have, uh, there is no classes. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's only contracts. There's yeah. only formal and abstract uh, laws. There's only competing uh, parties with equal rights. Yes. You know, and as we know, an equal right means equal right, force decides. Mm-hmm. And this is what we see in the United States. The Supreme Court in the 19th century ruled that labor is a commodity like all other commodities, and you can't stop somebody from consuming that commodity. Human beings, of course, being their labor power being a commodity, you had no right to stop somebody else's business. You had no right to withhold your labor. They could simply hire somebody else and send them in. Because the state, American U.S. state capacity is so low at this point, for a variety of reasons, uh, what you end up having is a very, very chaotic struggle that happens on the ground, uh, that happens in jurisdictions and towns all over the country, where labor and capital, in a real sense, were locked in a sort of death struggle. Yeah, and the state is coming into being far behind, like the, the, uh, the economic forces unleashed by the Civil War revolutionize very quickly America's uh, 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 economic life. Uh, but the state that's supposed to administer this uh, has is lagging way behind in forming, and and it is during this period when we sort of get finally the filling in of the American regulatory state, and it is uh, in the context of the two political parties being essentially bought out by this new 
concentrated capital that has emerged from the war. Uh, they, 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 the people who got government greenbacks to do all this uh, manufacturing for the war effort are now, after the war, using the profits that they accrued to buy their control over the political process. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons that uh, over and over again, when the labor conflict of this period happens, the uh, local authorities do not bat an eye about sending in uh, the troops, the, the cops, uh, letting uh, private security do it and let, turn the other way and uh, unleashing hellacious violence on, on uh, 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 protesting striking workers. And, you know, that, that violence was given back. Uh, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 starts as a labor dispute. Uh, you had all the different craft locals on the railroads, as you have today. You know, we saw that spectacularly when all 15 unions, um, you know, kind of in, in a balkanized way with the railroad strike a couple months ago, couldn't actually get it together for coordinated activity. You had the same thing back then. What, turn, what starts the small wage dispute turns into basically the first general strike in this country, a rolling conflict mm -hmm. uh, across the rails in St. Louis. Uh, workers were picketing, the cops came and the workers burned down, you know, million dollar railroad facilities. People were shot. The whole town was fucking tear gassed. A huge fire erupted. Uh, this was this looked like Civil War Part Two. Mm -hmm. This looked like a return to that because, again, there's no mechanism at this point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There is no way to adjudicate these disputes other than to try to disperse them with violence. But, you know, people will fight for their survival, which they do. Uh, and. The labor. This is one of the big sparks of the motivators for the progressive uh, yeah. rise, which is the the middle class of these political parties watching, sort of in horror, as the ossified political uh, economic uh, the ossified political structures uh, at the uh, who are totally subordinated to high capital at this point are, are just allowing this social conflict to boil mm -hmm. unceasingly undermining the very structure of the state that they're supposed to be supporting undermining stability yeah. and the kind of law and order you need in order to not just accumulate but also get a job as a clerk yes. for like a railroad company and have a nice middle class life Yeah. so you have this political revolt of the professional classes basically yeah. uh, of both parties seizing control of the reins of the parties uh, in order to do the reform forms necessary to uh, to sh guide the ship of state away from total co uh, conflagration. Uh, and that, you know, that cycle is re repeated, uh, re uh, is often repeated uh, in bourgeois democracy where you get a point where uh, there is no more responsiveness between the institutions and conditions on the ground. And then some restive portion of the, the middling classes uh, are able to uh, leverage their uh, really their, uh, their social solidarity that comes from their control of the uh, cultural superstructure more than anything, like newspapers and, and uh, universities specifically in this case, uh, to, to apply a, uh, a generalized program that, that overawes the rel less organized demands of the, the lower classes and the, uh, the, uh, individualized uh, uh, um, uh, interests of the capitalist classes. Uh, and so we get this progressive uh, reform movement that uh, ameliorates uh, some of the worst excesses of capitalism, but does not crucially uh, legitimize the labor movement mm -hmm. in any meaningful way. Right. There, there is still, the labor conflict is still in this legal gray area at all times. 
Well, you know, from a progressive point of view, and this is just as true today with a figure like Joe Biden or somebody like Nancy Pelosi, or let's call it like it is, AOC, mm-hmm. um, labor for progressives is a sectional interest. Yeah. Uh, it is a group of um, various institutions which uh, progressives like that they can actually gain wages for particular workers. They like that they are able to contain social conflict, class conflict, then as now. They see them at, in a very instrumental sense as a way... Uh, as as a as a a sort of form that can function to bring stability and order to an otherwise chaotic world, mm-hmm. the problem is is that labor militants back then and labor militants today have a completely different conception of what labor unions are and indeed what the working class is. Uh, not seeing the working class as like a narrow, uh, particular self interested member of the coalition of political parties or interest group within Mm -hmm. society and politics itself, but instead see the working class as an agent for itself. And in fact, see the working class and its struggle as identical with the struggle for, for higher ideals like freedom, like socialism, like solidarity for progressives then and progressives. Now it's instead a very instrumental uh, and this conflict, of course, rages in the 19th century just as it rages today. Yeah. N- nowadays, I think there is a general sense uh, on the progressive left that l- unions are good because they uh, promote good outcomes right. for people, which uh, has always only been a, a, a very uh, narrow reading of what a union is supposed to be good for. And, you know, if you can convince yourself that you're on an infinite growth horizon, maybe that's good enough. Sure. You know, maybe if we Rising are... Rising tide, yeah, all boats, et right. cetera. But, but if, the, if, the, if, the, if the boat is sinking, if, if it's springing leaks, then it doesn't... Then the, those narrow gains become sort of beside the point if they can't be uh, maintained and can only, over time, be eroded. Yeah, and also if they have no real political horizon besides, like... Nowadays, defensism of like declining sectors, trying to keep wages, you know, maybe as high as inflation, if you're lucky, trying to keep like a disgusting congery of gross ghouls called the Democratic Party in power. Um, The reasons for this, um, this progressive marriage with the unions is actually really interesting. And I think it goes to show that especially the progressives of the late 19th and early 20th century the ways in which this interplay between the middle class, big P, progressive left, quote unquote, and the working class, what it came into alliance for a certain amount of time, or at least seemed to be an alliance, but has broken down for at least, I don't know, 60, 70 years at this point in time. As you say, you know, the progressive movement was a lot of things, but one of the things it was meant to do and did do to a certain extent was to rationalize um, markets mm-hmm. was to rationalize not just labor markets, but make sure that, you know, we don't do irrational things like have a worker in the meatpacking plant lose his arm and it yeah. falls into the fucking meat yeah. or, you know, things of this or, or just have like one capitalist control all the steel, but then also the railroads that move the steel and the mine that brings the iron out. You know, these sort of monopoly tendencies too are things that progressives, the kind of like bleeding edge of issues, you know, of, of capitalism of the 19th and earlier. 20th century, they were there to say, let's reform, let's modernize, let's regulate, let's ensure that the market economy runs, uh, you know, fairly, quote unquote, incorrectly. Right. Yeah. Like, it, 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 like uh, asserting a political prerogative over capitalism, saying like capitalism is 
is subject to a political process, which, you know, has now been lost. Like, no, nobody even really believes no. that anymore. Nobody talks about, uh, nobody in politics talks about capitalism anymore. They talk yeah. about the free market system. You know, there's... Um, what the courts of the of the uh, in the Lochner period and even before that, they, it was funny how the Fourteenth Amendment was passed. At, you know, at the end of the Civil War, was it? Yeah. <clears throat> in order to ensure you know civil rights for uh, individuals in the United States, for citizens of the United States, and very quickly the con- conception of substantive due process comes along, which actually makes the Fourteenth Amendment you know a very progressive thing, a cudgel. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to beat and enjoin uh, militant labor activity. There was talk, you know, in the 1880s, 90s, and in the, in, in the 1900s that labor militancy, that the goals of the labor movement are anti-American. Yeah. Progressives said this, and certainly conservatives said this at mm-hmm. the same time. And I think it's fair to admit that in a certain sense, they're very absolutely. correct. Absolutely un-American. It, yeah, it denied the central mythology of American political uh, uh, political ideals. Yeah. It, it denied that we are all in this apart and that, that it, this is essentially a big competition where we're all getting our peace. And, uh, and, and that we adjudicate things at the ballot box in the political right. realm and through courts. And that where you end up on the hierarchy is essentially God's will, one right. way or the other. However you slice it, you want to call it God, you want to be Herbert Spencer and call it natural selection. Or call it progress. Yeah, one way or the other, yeah. this is where you end, you end up where you should end up. Right. Uh, and that is what America is. And the, the, the radical unionism of the late, 20th, late 19th century, uh, most, a lot of it espoused and uh, uh, conceived by immigrants. Yeah, said that's crazy. What are you talking about? We're yeah. all literally in this together. There's no other way that we survive as a species without cooperation. And that 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 was a that is and always will be a a, a, a heresy in America. A heresy to this day. Yeah, we are not fighting for our individual rights as individual workers yeah. to get the best wages we possibly can. We're instead recognizing that there is a class system that the preponderance of power over the way in which things are made distributed and consumed in this country is in the hands of a tiny minority. We are arguing not for individual rights, but class-based rights. And once you cross that Rubicon in American law and in an American ideology and in the American economy, all of a sudden now you are anti-American. You're on the other side of the fence now. Yeah. And there's no... And there has never really been any container for it as a result. Like the, the closest thing that uh, we got, not a labor party, but rather as uh, a temporary moment when the working class organized into labor unions was a influential and meaningful part of the coalition yes. of the Democratic Party. And that's as close as they ever got. Yeah. Uh, and that's because all the containers we have, all the social containers we have are structured by that political ideology, that 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 American notion. Uh, so they're always have been along for the ride one way or another, or they've come into existential conflict with the state, in which case they are destroyed methodically. Methodically, yeah. Certainly in like the Palmer raids and the Red Scare. And it's not simply, you know, don't get it twisted out there. It's not simply political ideology. It's not simply like the sort of liberal notions that get in people's heads and then we all have these ideas and, you know, people act upon them. It's like 
inscribed yeah. into the political economy of this country. The Jeffersonian yeoman idea of what America is that's now been taken up, you know, by the conservative right wing in this country was a material fucking reality. Yes. That material reality of like the self-sufficient, independent, virtuous, petty producer, yep. commodity producer who controls their own tools, their own means of production and their own land was very real at the very beginning. It just becomes monstrous. Yeah. It just becomes disgusting by the end of the 19th century when, for historical reasons, for the reasons of capitalist development, less and less and less people are actually living this particular way. But it's already inscribed itself in the political economy and in the ideology and the political structure of this country to the point that the labor question of the 19th century becomes an existential one for yeah. the United States. I mean, the, the operating system, the Constitution, like all of its provisions are fixed on this conception that the goal is to get a plot of land that you can live off of and that you can rise through voluntary mm. contribution in the market. Mm -hmm. You can choose. I want a right, bigger barn. Yeah. I, want, I want a nice house. I want, a, I want to get a good dowry for my daughter. You can grind. You can yeah. get on that grind uh, and you can contribute to the market. You can make, you can uh, do surplus and then you can sell it in the market and you can hustle. If that sounds uh, like a pain in the ass, if that sounds pointless, hey, my house is nice, uh, what do I need more for? You can stay, you can live mm. and you can decline to participate right. in the market. That is the freedom that, that America promised. And, and the, of course, the hilarious thing is Jefferson is the chief exponent of this <laughs> ideologically, but it only really ever existed and only for a little while in New England. Yeah. Because like the, the, the southern colonies became dominated by large scale plantation, plantation agriculture yeah. very quickly. Pushing, pushing all of the yeomen into the edges of productivity. Yeah, where up they into the Appalachians. Dirt, yeah. <laughs> dirt farmers where they don't get to even uh they even if they grind they're not going to make it in yeah. the market they are going to hang on by their fucking dirty fingernails if they're lucky they're like it, a harbinger of yes. what happens to the working class yeah, no, like jefferson's fantasy was only happening in new england and like fucking brain tree and shit and only of course for a little while because the the joke was the land in new england is dog shit and almost immediately they started moving out of it yeah and moved in that west that 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 uh, east west move where the where yankee new englanders colonized upstate new york the, the western reserve yep. of ohio and the the old northwest territory the pressure valve yes it yeah like everyone talks about the mass immigration of the 19th century 25 million people coming from northern europe western europe eastern europe southern europe to the united states and to a lesser extent china and asia right we know coolie labor or whatever but at the same time that those 20 25 million people are coming to the United States. 11 million people leave or are displaced from their small family farms and end up in a, either farther out west to be removed from there a couple generations later from the farms out in the Great Plains or in California, or they end up in the cities as wage laborers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it ends up being that like Ohio. That's the, there's a reason that that is the ur middle class state, you know. That's the reason that it's the prototypical Republican state where, where Howard where, where the Taft family yeah. is from and stuff, because that is where that New England dream got its last gasp, really. Mm. Because they found some bottomland finally, and the Yankees took over Ohio, and they got to live that dream for a little bit, and it's inscribed everything ever since. And it's like every ritual, every. Uh, culture war issue it boils down to this like mm. uh, I really like this the the second amendment for example the gun the firearm deal at, I mean, yes it's a commodity and it's a commodity fed we're all you know we can't not find our expression through our purchases it's all we have left but sp the specific symbolism of the of the firearm it is the last physical totem 
of the promise of yeoman self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Now, when you look at what the, that actually was materially, like we're talking about, a piece of land that you owned mm-hmm. in perpetuity with uh, uh, access to means of social reproduction and surplus production, mm-hmm. your ability to interact on the market on your terms, now, sta- now is represented by a gun that theoretically means if the government shows up at your house, you can die shooting at them. But you're, all right, you've got that gun in a house that, okay, you own, but the bank really owns yeah, it. Yeah. And it's got, what, a quarter acre uh, uh, lawn? You're, you're not, not growing, growing on You're there. not subsisting on you, that shit. You're, you're not going to set up a fucking uh, weaving operation in the basement and turn that into productive property. You can only stay in that house if you make money in the market and somebody else is paying you and you are... Everything that the great grandpappy with his fucking uh, Tennessee long rifle feared has come, but you've still got the gun, mm-hmm. and that means that you still have the thing. And of course, no, but that's the tra- that's the magic of the market of turning commodities into representations of real material relationships that are now abstracted. And you know who also had the guns in the 19th century? The fucking workers. It's true. They were strapped. The fucking... The Lehr und Ververein. Those are my favorite (laughs) ones. Those are the German anarchist, uh, syndicalist, whatever, uh, labor... Uh, uh, militia. Ah. And they would... uh, They pretended that they were like a a sporting club. That's what they told the authorities and stuff. And then they would go out, like, take a ferry out of the city and, like, do... Uh, target practice. They were the Socialist shit. Rifle Association yeah, yeah. of the... Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but they actually had jobs. There's that building <laughs> on St. Mark's. Have you seen it? It's where Yoga to the People was, and now it's a vegan restaurant. <laughs> on the facade of the building is, in German, German Rifle Club. Oh, yeah. hell yeah. Right here in New York City. All right, folks, that's the end of the free half of this episode. If you like what you've heard so far on the labor question, uh, subscribe to the pod and support our work. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Antifada. Hope to see you on the other side of the paywall. Thanks. Thanks.